If you enjoy being average, this may not be the show for you. This is where you can learn the skills and mindset to turn mediocrity into excellence. You're listening to Against All Average with Kyle Tolzman. What's up, Kyle Tolzman? Welcome back to another episode of the Against All Average podcast. Hope you guys are having an awesome week. We're recording this episode on a Friday. And I don't know if you even like my weather reports, nor do I care. The weather is freaking beautiful in Hillsboro, Oregon today. I don't know. It might hit 65, maybe 70. It's sunny. Nobody cares. It's not uh, It's not dreary. It's not wet. It's uh, starting to look a little bit more like early summer. So I'm excited. I'm pumped. After this, going to go get a haircut. And then I am going to help out at the local football game running the old chain gang so that's my day today might have to grade a few papers may have to edit a few podcasts but it's going to be another great friday before we get started with another amazing guest when you need fun and simple solutions to manage your event give our friends at fair and event a call ticketing vendor booth management interactive floor plans and fusion rfid technology they'll always give you the against all average treatment to save you time money and provide simple solutions for your next event you can find them at www.fairandevent.com All right, let's get going. You know what's up. It's season three. I only post one podcast a week and I only talk to people that I can stand for an hour. So they've got to be interesting. They've got to keep things running and flowing. And we've got an amazing gentleman today that's going to make you laugh. And you're going to love his story about how he became a winemaker and his wine shop. Like this, this is going to be unbelievable. So before, so here's the little intro. You guys ready on the edge of your seats? Our guest. Today is an award-winning winemaker and small business owner that is just trying to have some fun and make a living while doing it. His favorite quote is something along the lines of, if you enjoy what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. If that's the case, Joe Williams has not worked very many days over the years. (laughs) Please welcome to the show, Joe Williams. What's up, Joe? (laughs) Not too much. Thanks, Kyle. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Joe, the the first question that we usually get started with is in order for my viewers to kind of figure out kind of how you got to where you are now, they need to start to understand you kind of early on in how you grew up. So can you take us back? Can you get that memory flowing back to the days of when you were maybe 10 years old or even younger? What did what did what did life look like growing up? Where'd you live? What did school look like? And kind of paint a picture so we can go back and forth into what you do now. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, wow. At that age, you know, I'm uh, living in Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm Never really, you know, grew up with the philosophy. My dad said I was going to grow old and pay taxes, so I didn't have to grow up. So, you know, I'm still working on that. Um, and my dream at that point in time, by the time I was... So I got into food service and I worked in that and had a, you know, I've traveled all over. I worked resorts for a long time. I just seasonal worker, did everything front of the house, back of the house, and we played for 30 years. And I fell in love with wine along the way. 
So it's a good transition. And one day, all of a sudden, Joe got this grandiose idea after selling a restaurant that he could do everything on his own. So he opened another restaurant. <laughs> to my demise. Yeah, it seems like you've been food and service through and through. Take us back to your first job in the restaurant industry and talk about kind of what you did there, what the place was all about. Oh, wow. So first restaurant job was actually um, a bakery um, that I got to scrape, uh, you know, 20 foot wooden tables and all the good old sugar and shortening off the floors and wash dishes in the cafe out front. and. It was, yeah, it probably should have set me straight right there, but it was a load of fun. The people were, you know, were definitely unique and energetic and they loved what they did. And it just made me stay in love with them with food. So, And was, was there anything else that you were working on at the time that got you excited? Did you do any construction work or, you know, I, I have this oh. picture in my head about Fairbanks, Alaska, and I would think that you'd need to be a little bit more of a jack of all trades. Was there anything else that you're like, well, I could see myself doing this or I could see myself doing that? Oh, opportunities were there. You know, I had buddies that um, their daddies were contractors on the North Slope because the pipeline was still going. They were painters and that around town. They had contracts with the military bases because at that time, between the pipeline and uh, military, you had um, Army and Air Force in the area. So they were they were really prevalent for job kind of deals. But I got to tell you that at um, 40 below zero. That kitchen is always <laughs> 70 degrees. <laughs> oh, man, I know. Yeah, that's so, that's definitely the that's definitely something I didn't think about. Like, I didn't think when I talked to you today, like you just wanted to be warm. Yeah. And I mean, and it was cash flow. You know, these I was never the guy until I became a, a server. Well, even when you're a server, just kind of dilutes your thought processes that it's cash every day. So, you know, working in the kitchen and the restaurants, I got a paycheck every week. These guys were working in the summertime and they had they made enough money that they had to like budget themselves for the whole year. Right. I still sometimes is that guy, you know, that all of a sudden I got money in my pocket. Let's go do something. Right. So. Yeah, I think that's probably in the early days, right? In the early days, you see the cash coming in and you're like, oh, tips, keep it going, keep it going. But Hell yeah. But yeah, you know, many of your your friends probably worked in the fishing industries and those types of industries where, you know, you work for two months and you make enough for a year, but you have to oh, have yeah. some insane discipline uh, to kind of keep it alive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you, I mean, and I went to school with those guys that they go, you know, their daddy owned a fishing boat out of Kodiak and they'd go down and they'd go fishing for the, um, for the summer. Sometimes they'd go down over Christmas break and fish for 10 days. And they'd come back with that forty, fifty thousand dollar, you know, jacked up pickup truck with the custom paint job on it. And you'd be like, ooh. But then three months later, they were broke. And you're like, ah, you know what? I still got a paycheck tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess there's probably two sides to that, right? Like maybe some of your buddies changed their ways, but probably not. They probably are still, you know, going fishing for three months and buying fancy things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would teach you something about budgeting if you were able to control your budget and you weren't going broke in January or February. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, this has been, you know, and you still, you know, with, um, you know, waiting tables, it was still kind of, you know, you budget yourself because you can't plan on, you know, a busy night every night and can't spend that money until it's there. So that's been a real helpful thing is, you know, especially in the business now, because we deal with people that, 
you know, they're on credit lines. So you kind of get to the point, it's like, you know, oh, I can do this. But yeah, until that check's like really in the bank and cleared, you know, you're not making any plans to do anything. Right. You know, you can't live like a a lot of people have this, this thought that entrepreneurs or small business owners, oh, you've got all this money coming in. You've got all this money and you can do everything with all this money. And many don't understand just cash flow and, and when it comes in and how it's spent and where it goes, you realize, well, you have to make, you know, four times that or five times that to actually have that in your pocket because of just cash flow and cash resources. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, they're happy to see, you know, the, um, the employees coming and going and they like to see, you know, you're employing people, but yeah, they don't realize that, you know, that all that cash that comes in is dispersed between everybody, between, you know, employees and your rent and everything that we live for. I mean, in your house, you know, is the same thing that's happening in the business because it's just another location where everything is still due. And guess what? Joe gets paid last. <laughs> if he gets paid at all, <laughs> it, it, you know, if if the if the business owner gets paid at all, it's it, yeah. they're getting paid last. So yeah. uh, I think that's always a common misconception that you know business owners are driving around in Lamborghinis and they have these huge houses. But I would say that the average entrepreneur and small business owner is is living a similar life to some of their employees. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you have to, because, you know, if we, if we don't, then we won't have employees and we won't have a business. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it would be, it would be nice. You know, I always say that if I win the lottery, everybody will know it because my boat and my truck will be matching colors, but you know, (laughs) it doesn't happen like that. For sure. That's the dream, right? Just the custom paint job on both of them. You'll be living like your buddies in Alaska. Right. Yeah. Except warmer. There you go. 70 degrees in the kitchen all day right. long. <laughs> all day long. <laughs> That's awesome. So you started out kind of with a bakery, talk about getting all the gunk off the tables. And what I started to hear in your voice, Joe, is that you have a, and I know this from knowing you, is that you have you have a way with dealing with people. Like you definitely have that skill set that's kind of helped you along the way, making connections, building rapport and building small businesses. Talk about some of the next stops in your journey as a kind of someone that's hanging out in the, in the service industry, started out in a bakery, talk about some of the next jobs that you had as maybe a server or a manager or, and then eventually you're starting to own restaurants. Yeah. So for sure. You know, I mean, I moved on, I did um, two years of uh, culinary school when I was in high school. So um, I ended up uh, managing a, uh, Ca- uh, cafe, uh, cafeteria kind of situation up at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And then I get into cooking and I cooked a um, small Italian restaurant where, you know, the gal who owned the restaurant never learned the sauces because the lady she was training with in New York City would come down at midnight and make the sauces so that they were all done when they walked in the next day because family secret and you don't get to know that until your family kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And then, I, you know, I travel around, I go, um, I go to work in Arizona, which puts me out on the Oregon coast, which was a beautiful thing. The um, general manager down there had a mentor for um, Shiloh Inns out at um, Seaside. So I end up out there. I end up going to work in Lincoln City at 26 years old as the youngest uh, manager on staff for the corporation, which was a load of fun. And it was a lot of just, you know, taking the bull by the horns and let's get it done. And people had, uh, had an appreciation for that. And, and I had a great time doing it because you got to just move around and get that done. 
Um, and then I ended up in uh, Portland because uh, one of the people I was working with out at the coast came to work and I ended up in a small family restaurant uh, that was owned by um, a lady that did five years with James Beard. It was our little French bistro downtown. Um, I was waiting tables at the both restaurants and I had a confrontation with the lady that was a chef down there one day. And um, <laughs> I ended up uh, ended up doing lunch um, with the, um, with the owner, um, Helen, and it was an absolutely amazing experience. And um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot more about food that I didn't think I had to learn. Um, I actually even grew into an appreciation for, um, Julia child who absolutely drove me nuts for like 80% of my food service career with that voice and everything I can hear else. That. And, I can hear that voice. Right now. <laughs> you know, um, but some of the things, you, you know, that she said was, um, you know, everything in moderation, including moderation. Um, and, um, if you stop learning about what you're doing, then you probably should find something else to do because you've lost a passion for what you're doing. So, um, those were really cool things to do and, and grow through there and then end up chefing and managing that restaurant. And then things happened with their family. They sold the restaurant, you know, I ended up at Kells, um, Irish pub for nine years, um, chefing there, which put me up at chart house up on Terwilliger for a few years which moved me down to McCormick and Schmick's on Beaverton Hillsdale highway at the fish house where, you know, I met, um, the general manager who we opened a restaurant together. I met my lovely bride there many years ago, um, who we've reconnected with and moved forward and opened the restaurant up in uh, Southwest Portland and which is still running today, which is an amazing accomplishment, you know, 20 years that restaurant's been running. So it's been good. And, then, of course, I went and opened a restaurant up in Tiger and big restaurant and a lot of cash out of pocket, a lot of credit running around on the line. And yeah, it just didn't work. So you learn to not overextend yourself and um, stay within your means, which is something that, you know, it's really this whole COVID thing has really put a definition to that where, you know, we've stepped back into roles and doing things and, you know, probably working a few more hours than we normally would be working in a day, but you know, it, it gets done and, um, and we have fun. So it's awesome. So it's been a great, I mean, it's a, been a great, um, trek through life, I guess it would say. And there's so much you said there, Joe, that I'm going to pick apart here in a little bit because the, the story is so interesting. And I think you have so much valuable insight just because you've been in the service industry so long in the restaurant industry specifically that you have a lot of different insights. So the first one that I want to talk about is restaurant management. Okay. It's actually one of the classes that I'm teaching right now at, uh, at the school that I'm teaching at. And it's kind of dabbling a little bit. And my only experience in restaurant management on the smallest scale ever is doing little businesses inside the high school, a little smoothie shop in the high school. And I, I assume some of the things that I've seen you see on a bigger scale, but like, what was the toughest part? You come in at 26 years old, you're fired up, you're rearing ready to go. And you're now the manager of of restaurants for Shiloh Inns, I believe it was. Yep. And what do you run into? Did you think the troubles that you were going to run into, were they actually real? Or did you have a whole different load of problems, issues, uh, problem solving types of uh, things that you had to go through at that point? Well, you, um, 
I think the hardest thing that I learned and, um, and sometimes I still have to remind myself of is that, um, not everybody approaches, um, their job with a sense of ownership like you did. Um, so, you know, that they're just, they're there for the, they're there for the cash flow. That's all they're there for. Um, and they're not really there for what's happening. Uh, and that was tough. Um, egos. Um, you know, I tell people all the time that if you think a chef and a winemaker don't have um, an ego, then you're fooling yourself. You know, <laughs> we always look at each other and you, the phrase, you know, everybody says is, uh, well, you can't please everybody all the time. And then they walk around the corner of the wall and go, well, what can I have done different? Right. And it's not that politically correct when they say that to themselves too. So, you know, they'll be like, you know, uh, um, so you learn that. Um, and then some of the hardest things with guys moving up in the business was that passion. They wanted to show you what they could do. And, you know, and some of the things you would be at, you're looking at would be truly amazing, but then you would get them down and be like, okay, so here's your, you know, here's your food cost of what it's got to be to be able to cover, you know, your payroll, rent, the utilities and everything else. So now cost that item out. And then come back and tell me that if we're going to put it on a special sheet for, um, for the day, what am I going to have to charge per plate? Right. And then they would come back and that, that was a huge realization that you would watch guys really start to develop when they put all of that thought process into place where they could look at things and go, you know, this is what I want to do and how can I do it to be the most cost effective so that not only is the guest happy, but you know, the bean counters in the back office are happy too. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about ego. What, what would you do? Let's say, you know, you come in as this 26 year old manager, everybody has some level of ego unless oh. you completely like shell up in the corner and you don't want to talk to anybody. Like I just haven't met many managers like that. You no. have your own ego. Your chefs have their ego. You know, the next guy coming in the door that wants to move up from the bottom to the top as quickly as possible. They have their ego. What have you found as a manager? to be the most successful in, in getting your team to see eye to eye and dropping the ego down to a reasonable level? Um, I think you just have to talk through it with that, with that person who is generally the most confrontational of the two people that may be having an issue and they need, you need to be able to allow them to come to their own conclusion about compromise. I mean, it has to be, there has to be a compromise because if you continually beat them down and try to make them try to conform when you lose their individuality, you lose their passion. Um, and, and that, and that's what you hired them for. So you just kind of, I mean, you have you, communication, you know, it's not a shun word. It needs to be used all of the time and you need to come through and, and allow them to develop a thought. And sometimes it's been, I mean, if you were in my position, how would you deal with this situation? And make them make them reevaluate what they're doing and how they're doing it. And that's been the biggest thing. I mean, employee um, evaluations, one of the they used to hate it because they thought it was so easy. But, you know, come in and tell me how you're doing, how you think you're a part of this team and how your participation level is. How do you fit into this team? What do you contribute to this team? And what you know, what do you basically what do you bring to this? And then what am I then what am I not providing you with to succeed in what you're doing? And when they start self-evaluating themselves, man, you watch them look in and they beat themselves up way harder than you ever would have because they start to generally get inside their own heads. 
Yeah, you can do the same thing in the classroom. It's it's interesting. If I have to grade an essay or a some sort of final project, hey, hey, buddy, how did you how do you think you did? And you yeah. know, in, in my head, I already gave them an A minus, right. and, and they're fighting tooth and nail for a C plus right. <laughs> <laughs> because they're so you know they they know they know what they're capable of, right. I think that's the biggest distinction when we start to have a real and raw and truthful conversation about, you know, when you use words like you just did, Joe, you kind of even separate the job. You start saying like, what are you to this team? What do you contribute? And it starts to back their mind away from seeing cash on the table. It starts to back their mind away from when they first got the job. It starts to back their mind away from the conflicts that they're having inside the restaurant. And they start to really be like, Oh, okay. And hopefully what you get is, Oh, I'm the problem or, Oh, I need to work a little bit harder. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, along that line is I remember I'm a guy that was working for me one time and, uh, he came in and um, he gave me notice he was leaving. And I enjoyed working with this guy, but we kind of hit a plateau where we weren't feeding off of each other anymore. And so I asked him, I says, where are you going? And he, and he was just, you know, dumbfounded. And I was like, seriously, I mean, if you're leaving because we're not um, beneficial to each other at this point in time, and you're making a lateral move, I know other people that would truly appreciate your talents and I would rather see you go there than make a lateral move. If you're making a, if you're making a move to move up in this industry and do something, you know, that you're more than capable of doing, then let's talk about it. And we, we stayed friends after that, just for that reason alone, I think. And he was a great guy and he did, he made, um, you know, he was moving into a position that just wasn't available in my kitchen at that time. Right. And what you say there sounded so simple and so smooth, but it offers our guests an insight into how do you deal with somebody that's leaving your company? How do you, because a lot of times those employees come back somehow, some way into your life. And so how you deal with them upon their entrance and exit of working with you means everything in the world. And, you know, next time you're throwing an event and you needed a server, you may reach out to that person if they understand that you're always going to treat them with respect and dignity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, it's the whole thing. It's not just, you know, you know, it's a, it, it's a brand, it's a Branson um, kind of a philosophy of, you know, if you don't care about your employees, then, you know, they're not going to care about you. Yeah. It's the same thing in the classroom. If, if, if your students don't know that you care, they don't care what you know. That is so true. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. If they don't, if they don't truly understand that you, you care about them as a person, they will never try to learn. And I think even this comes even more prevalent in homes with not a lot of love, with not a lot of, not a lot of interaction with those kids. They really need to know that you care. And when you're a manager or business owner, you're just dealing with kids. (laughs) You're just, you're just dealing with big kids, right? Absolutely. some of them yeah. need more love than others. Right, Joe? That's right. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think one of my favorite things was always, you know, having to 
having to sit down and have that disciplinary conversation with somebody and looking at them and going, okay, seriously, of the two people sitting at this table, when I have to become the adult in this conversation, <laughs> there is something seriously wrong going on. <laughs> It's, it's so true. That's the same way. I'm like lighting somebody up in the classroom. And it's just like, I'm thinking to myself, like, wasn't I just that kid? Right. Exactly. Wasn't yeah. I just in that desk? Wasn't yeah. I just that squirrely? Wasn't <laughs> I just that person? Like, why am I so pissed off right now? Right. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes it's, um, we see, it put the potential. And we know that um, sometimes um, in that moment, probably our expectations of what of them and what they're doing are not meeting our expectations where they're probably at a point in time where they're like, you know, today, I just don't care. Right. And they're like, not today. Come on. So, yeah. 100%. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, um, it's crazy. Cause I mean, I can, you know, my mom's been a teacher my whole life. I mean, my mom had five kids and um, went to college and then became a teacher. And at 80 years old, she's still substituting at the school that she taught at for, um, for 20 years. Um, and Man. our conversations at the table were always on, you know, especially Sunday was sit down. Everybody had to be present at the table for dinner. Um, during the week, especially when you become teenagers, you know, you've got, you got things going on. I mean, we, you know, we had soccer, we had baseball, we had, you know, my brothers wrestled, um, all that kind of stuff. But Sunday was like everybody at the table. And I tell people all the time, our conversations at a Sunday dinner table were sometimes what they would consider heated. But my mom would just look at you in the middle of it and go, so is what you're telling me something that you honestly believe or something that somebody else told you? And can you substantiate your thought process by any facts other than what somebody's told you? Did you find them out on your own? And you'd be like, wow. So I made you, you know, I mean, I grew up in a house with a hardcore Republican and a hardcore Democrat in the house. So, you know, finding balance and compromise has always been something that's been uh, necessary. So, yeah, and I'd be sitting at that table, mom, what, what the heck does substantiate mean? What, what are you, <laughs> why, why are you throwing out big words on a Sunday? Come on. All right. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think that's true. And I think that's something we need to talk about. And I'm not going to go into it at length, but so many folks in our political spectrum right now only will only will attach themselves to a political party and they will not create ideas of their own. They won't do their own research. They won't back up their um, their their arguments usually is what it is with any data. It's all based on emotion. And I, I almost find it ridiculous that you will only align with every single thing that one political party says. Right. I I think it's completely, I don't know. It's, it's too easy. And because of the ease and lack of knowledge, it becomes too easy to be sure. divisive on social media and to be divisive in conversations where you're not offering value. You're not offering a different no. perspective. You are just vomiting whatever you have heard on whatever, you know, whatever news station you're watching, whatever social media you're following, whatever your friends are saying. But like your mom said in these heated debates, Hey, substantiate that. Don't, yeah. you know, we're not just going to blab and, and act like what we're saying is fact. Where is your data? Sure. I mean, we all grew up with the, you know, hearing the thing, you know, there's two sides to every story. I think we stopped looking for the other side. 
Wow. So we're not, you know, we're only like, and like you say, you know, in social media, as soon as you look at, you know, something or you like something, especially on Facebook, then they just inundate you with all of this right along the same thing. So now it's like, you know, that's the only thing you're seeing. Yeah. Whatever side of the aisle you are. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't matter which side. I mean, I have friends on both sides of the aisle that once, you know, that every once in a while make me go, what? So, yeah. I mean, you know, and employees and, you know, peers and which is a weird term to me. Peers always to me was something that you look up to, you know, and it's not everybody on the same plateau. And I think that as long as we look at everybody on the same plateau, politically, um, as well as, you know, work wise and living and everything else, then, you know, we start to see both sides of the story. And and that's what makes everything work. You know, and, it's, and it seems like it comes back to the old adage is, is you're kind of the, the same as the five closest people that you hang around. Social media is almost like the five closest friends that anybody has. Like, so sometimes like people's closest friends are like Joe, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Fox News or CNN. Like those are the, the five closest people that they hang around. And then they're the sixth, right? They're saying the same things. They're dressing the same way. You know, if I go onto Facebook, I can change my feed into all lacrosse if I wanted to, or sure. all football. I just start sharing and liking all those posts and voila, I am a, uh, uh, green Bay Packers super fan yeah, right? baby. because that's, that, <laughs> that's, that's all I see. You know, I'm not a Packers fan, but I had to give an example off the cuff. Right. Well, so, I am. So that works. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Maybe it was, maybe it was something like I'd seen you in a shirt or something and it popped into my head. I don't know. Right on. Yeah. Um, we, I, used to, I wanna... we used to laugh that everybody wants to be different, just like their friends. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll go even further. If your favorites, if your best stories of success are from high school, you need to move on. Oh man. Yeah. And we see those guys still wearing their Jersey from high school and they're 50. <laughs> yep. And it still doesn't fit. No. <laughs> and, it, and it still doesn't fit. Uh, right. Joe, because, because we got to keep this flowing and I have, I have a lot of, uh, you're an interesting guy and I have to pick your brain on different topics. We got to keep moving. All one right. thing that I want to, uh, you, you start dreaming one day that you wanted to make wine. Can you take me from day one? I know the story's goes up and down and left and right. But can you talk to me a little bit about the early days of creating a brand of wine, uh, sourcing your grapes, all the different things that go into building um, to being a winemaker? Sure. So, you know, I was always when I was cooking, I was um, I was a home brewer. So that um, interest in fermentation and everything like that was always there. When I lost the last restaurant, um, one of the guys that um, was in the neighborhood from a Seasons and Regions, the restaurant I had in South um, West Portland, was a fine wine manager for one of the big distribution companies here. And he'd become the uh, assistant winemaker and national sales uh, manager for um, Panther Creek. So I ended up going out there. So then all of a sudden I fall in love with a different fermentation and all the different flavor profiles that are developed and the smells in the cellar. And I mean, I can drive through Carlton in August and all of the wineries going on and smell that fermentation and be like, ah, fall is here. This is cool. Um, so going through and doing that, and I became involved at that point in time with, um, it's a program called LIE, which is a low impact viticulture enology. So they're basically looking at, uh, 
leaving as small a carbon footprint as possible on um, on this small uh, planet that we live on so that uh, we can leave it for future generations. Uh, I had a saying with a guy out at um, Temecula one time that was talking about it. And I says, I never understood why um, we don't live like our grandparents did. Better living through chemistry was a phrase uh, DuPont um, put together in, you know, the 50s or the 60s that uh, we end up with better products and a cleaner product by being better stewards of the land. So from growing the um, grapes to putting it in a glass, you know, three, four, five years later, um, I've tried to stick to that philosophy of um, doing that. So I got to know lots of um, family owned winery or um, vineyards and watching them be good stewards of the land and being, you know, passionate about what they were doing to help me become and stay passionate about what I was doing through the process. Um, you know, winemaker's greatest joy still is um, when that wine is in a bottle and it gets put away because it's finally completed. Um, so that process takes, you know, it takes a while um, unless it's a white wine, which we're getting done in, you know, less than a year. Um, red wines are anywhere before we even think about bottling them or a year and a half, two years. So. I equate it to um, children. Sometimes you want to run up and hug them and love them and tell them, ooh, and hold them up in the air and go, this is mine. You are so awesome. And other times they are like, just, what do you, um, they're bad kids. You want to put them in a closet and be like, yeah, that one's not mine. You know, they, they just, this is how you're talking to your wine. This is how you're talking about your wine. How dare you talk to your wine like that? <laughs> right. But you know what? When you put a bit, when you put it in a barrel, it's exactly where you left it the next day. <laughs> so it's, um, it, it's been fun and, and it's a great passion and it's a whole lot of different, um, flavors and every, every vintage, um, every varietal is different. So they're fun. And I deal with, I don't know, I probably deal with five, six different, um, growers that, um, you watch them be passionate about what they're doing. And I think it just makes you, want to, by the time you put it in a bottle, be able to say that and show that to them and be like, look at, this is what I've done with what you, with what you did. So it's been, yeah, it's been, um, it's been great. You know, we did, I was supposed to do 56 cases in 2011 and, um, I ended up doing 200. So, you know, we did 200 and then we did 900 and then we did 1200 and then we've done 1600, uh, 2000 cases for the last few years. Um, and then the other day you turn around and I'm like, Oh shoot, 2021's my um, 10th vintage. So, um, we're still here, still got, you know, 15 different wines that we're playing with and, and it, and it's still fun. I mean, I, you know, and I get the other side of it that still reverts back to the food service side of it and waiting tables. I get to go out and, um, and talk with people that are, have been huge supporters through everything, um, coming in from the neighborhood and, um, sitting in there and having conversations and knowing what's going on with them. And they know what's going on with me. And you, you know, it's a personal relationship with, with the whole neighborhood. And, and it, that's, and it's awesome. I mean, it's been, it's been a good mix for me that uh, I can have fun with both sides of it. And I still get that time to walk into a cellar and just hang out with the wine and turn the music up loud and then get in trouble for that. 
<laughs> and Joe also has a wine bar in downtown Hillsborough. And downtown Hillsborough is its own scene. It's its own small, it has its own target market. It has its own uh, group of folks that, that frequent the restaurants. And what I'm wondering, Joe, is through the relationships that you've built through the wine bar, what percentage would you say of that business is your sales of those cases of wine? Um, you know, we look at the um, report comes in and um, it's fun because we're probably return business is um, of, you know, old customers coming in um, every day is probably 70 to 80% of the business. Nice. So, I mean, you want to see growth, you want to see growth, but um, you, de- I mean, you definitely want to see that everything, you know, every day kind of deal too, which is making it successful because I did no advertising when we opened, when we opened this bar, because I was doing harvest at the same time. And I would get up at five o'clock in the morning and I would go do harvest. And then I would take care of all the fermentations. And then at one o'clock in the afternoon, two o'clock in the afternoon, I would be at the wine bar and I would open the doors. So people are like, advertise, advertise. I'm like, are you kidding me? If you add more hours to my day, I will be dead. (laughs) And it's just grown. You know, it's been truly a grassroots, um, kind of movement where, you know, people tell each other about it. We still have people that come in because we're off of just a block off of main street. And we have people that are like, I've never been here before. How do I not know that you're here? So right. the neighborhood, yeah, the neighborhood and those people that come in all the time and, you know, and I know the people that come in, you know, for music on Wednesday night. And I know the people that are going to come in for, you know, on Thursdays and Fridays, you know, they're, you know, when they're coming in and when all of a sudden it's like, Where'd you go? Oh, you know, we went to Eastern Oregon for, you know, for three days. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely have created the the regular scene. And I think there's two sides to this, Joe. You could start off with a lot of advertising and get your small space. How many people can fit in there? 20, 30? Um, At this point in time with current deals? Yeah, we're at um, 20. Yeah. So it's really a small group of folks that you need in there. And there's two ways to think about this. One you could spend some money on that advertising, that front end marketing. But what Joe does a good job of is that back end marketing, those conversations, what he actually puts on the table, the conversations that he has, the consistency that he has. And what he's saying is, I, I, it's not that I didn't want to advertise, like I didn't have time. And so right. we did it more old school grassroots where the first table came in and that table told another table. And that table told another table, another table. And inside there is a lot of return business, 80, 90%. You know, when I'm looking in there, it's like, I I recognize these folks. Like they're in here, they're in here usually on Wednesdays or they're over here on, on Thursdays. So there's definitely two ways. And I think you can, you can get away with that definitely on the small scale. I think it's probably tougher to do that on big scale, like maybe your tigered restaurant. Sure. Absolutely. You know, and one of the funnest things that when we first opened up was because Sunday dinner was always something that, you know, that was important when I was a kid. So we did Sunday dinners um, at the restaurant and it was fun because, you know, in those days, well, we could fill it with 40, 50 people, but we would do one long family style table down the middle of the room and then split it in half so people could get in between it. And people would come in and all of a sudden they would be sitting next to somebody that they walk past every day or like, you know, they see two or three times a week. And then all of a sudden now you put food in front of them, 
You put some alcohol in front of them. Now they're having a conversation. And the next time a dinner comes up, some of those groups were being like, so, hey, is you know, Ian here or is so-and-so here? And, and um, if they're here already, where are they sitting? Because we want to finish the conversation we had last month with them. So wow. they started to be that whole neighborhood family thing together. And that was one of the funnest things to watch truly develop that people in the neighborhood. And we have this um, habit, especially in life today, where sometimes we don't know our neighbor. You know, we see them, we wave, we say hi, but we haven't had a conversation with them. And now they're sitting at a table and they're holding a conversation and to walk around and watch that and watch them come around, you know, the next month and be looking for somebody or looking for somebody that had a relationship with me from maybe when I was um, just starting the wine business off and has followed me for the last 10 years coming in and sitting down at a table and, you know, and they're looking for, they're looking for new friends that they've, you know, that they've made there. And that's, and that's awesome. People say hi, you know, because like you say, you know, you recognize those people on the days in there and maybe they're on the same day, but they recognize people at other table and they say, Hey, and all that good stuff. And it's awesome to see. I mean, it feels good. Joe, would you say that's kind of the bread and butter of creating a small wine bar? Is that community and finding ways to build that community from the community you already have? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we've we've re kind of um, structured our thought process to say, you know, we are the neighborhood um, wine bar in downtown Hillsborough. And um, and some of that has become, you know, con- you know, constantly evolving and um, and watching this whole, you know, evolution of the neighborhood be in that way also. So, yeah, that's it is. our. I mean, it is our bread and butter because it's, you know, when we shut down, shut down. Um, and we couldn't open the doors and we turned into a bottle shop, the neighborhood stepped up. And I mean, we did, you know, we did bottle sales, we did case sales, we did all of that stuff that kept us with, you know, never delinquent on our rent and, and moving forward. And that right there, I mean, that made me just want to, you know, reach your arms out as far as you could and hug the whole neighborhood and say, thanks. I mean, it was, it, it is so far past saying I'm appreciative of it that, um, yeah, it was amazing. And, you know, not, not to say that this last year hasn't been shitty, not, not to say that this last year hasn't been hard, but there is those glimmers of hope. There are those glimmers of community coming together to support. And that's something that I was always, that I've always been big on. And and my dad taught me from a young age is just support the people that are supporting you. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's a place, you know, there's places downtown where, where we go to, to hang out and be with friends, you guys host us. And so in the, in the toughest of times we want to support. And I think that all comes together. One thing that I want to talk about, Joe, is you talked about building a community inside your place, as far as your customers, how important is it in a small town to create a community amongst other business owners that are in that same small town that share the same target market? Um, It's really important because, you know, if, if that community of small business owners doesn't survive, then, then none of us really survive. You know, there has to be, there has to be a reason for people to come down. Um, you know, whether you're going, you know, to Pizzeria, um, or, you know, um, or over to White Birch or something like that, you know, there's a reason for people to come down and now we're giving them more than one reason to come down. 
You know, it's not, you're not, a, you're no longer a destination. You know, that was always one of the things that, um, you know, some of the restaurants, um, chart house, that's a destination restaurant. You know, you go to the coast, some of the places on the coast, um, they're destination restaurants and that's the way they survive in the winter time. But for us in the downtown area, having that community and having, you know, people down there in the last, I don't know, I've lived in, I've lived in this neighborhood for 19 years and I've watched the downtown core kind of go through, you know, the ups and downs. And I think right now it's in probably a healthier um, business environment than it has been in a really long time. I mean, there were new businesses that opened up in the middle of COVID and they're still here. So, so, I mean, that's, that's amazing. And I can walk, you know, I can leave work and we're not open on Mondays, but I can drive through downtown where, 10 years ago, downtown was a ghost town after five, six o'clock, you know, and now if you, you need to find a parking spot some days, which is just, I mean, that's a beautiful thing to see because that means people are downtown They're you know, they're visiting these other businesses. And as long as they're coming down to visit, um, you know, people, then they'll always be coming down to see us. So yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's a good thing. Yeah, you definitely see a lot more walking around. You know, I think that's what was missing, you know, for this, the places like White Birch and, and other antiques types of places. It's like over the years, it's been up and down as far as people just kind of walking around, meandering, grabbing a glass of wine, going to the antique shop like that. I think it, it really creates. And I love what you said about the difference between a destination restaurant. And, and what would you consider yourself if you're not a destination restaurant? I think, you know, um, it's a place to hang out. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's on any given day. Um, and last week was a great example. I think I had four tables come in. You got Wi-Fi? Yep. Cool. I'll take a glass of wine. I'm going to go grade papers or I'm going to go finish this report or I'm going to go do this. And then just to step away from maybe it's the home office, um, you know, that they're in all day long and it's a place for them to come out especially when the sun's shining, sit out on the patio. It's a beautiful day today. Yeah. And people care, Kyle. They love it when the sun shines. They'll complain about it when it gets hot, but they love it when the sun shines. (laughs) Oh yeah. I I had the neighbor kid complaining yesterday that it was 58 outside and it was too hot. So (laughs) I I get what you're saying. Uh, One of the things that you need to continue to do to be successful downtown is continue to innovate. Can you talk a little bit about food truck Fridays and what you've tried to do in different ways to innovate and bring in not just people into your wine bar, Danu, but also just to bring them downtown? Because it sounds like you have the philosophy. If we just bring a bunch of people and give them a bunch of options and they stay down here, well, I'm just going to get a percentage of those that want to come hang out with me and it's all good. Right. Yeah. And you, and you need to give them a reason to come see you. I mean, you can't just be there and, and live off of the attrition of everybody else, dri- you know, driving traffic in that area. So it's been fun. Um, so food truck Fridays, which will begin at the end of um, April again here is, you know, supporting um, the food truck guys and putting the th- four food trucks in there. It's driven by um, Mindy over at Decadent um, Creations. Um so another another thing, you know, that we, you know, we benefit from that and we are hugely supportive of it. We have the um, we have the largest parking lot in downtown Hillsboro, except for the city. So it's a beautiful thing to put, you know, the food trucks out there, watch those guys succeed. Um, and then wintertime came and closed down and, you know, we got hit with, you know, well, what's going to happen on Friday? So mm-hmm. all of a sudden now we're doing 
fun food Fridays, um, in the, you know, at the tasting room and, and, and they're, they're popular today, probably a little too popular. I'm going to have to work for a living. So, um, <laughs> it'll be, um, it'll be interesting, um, and fun, but you know, so every Friday do something different because people still want to get out and come down and, you know, we're not seeing the crowds, which was a beautiful thing about breaking the um, food trucks up into every week instead of once a month. Then um, it became something to do on Fridays instead of a destination on once a month, which broke the crowd up a little bit, which made it um, a whole lot nicer um, last year. Um, you make you make a little bit a lot more often than you make just a large amount one time. And so it's more beneficial to everybody involved. Yeah, what I, you know, and I thought it was a great concept. You have the space, you bring in the food trucks, you know, the folks come in because it's something to do. It's something they're excited about. And I could be wrong, but last summer there was no downtown Hillsborough market, right? No. So they're so, talking yeah. about it though. They're talking about bringing it back this year? Yep. Yeah. 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 So that's something that definitely, definitely helps, helps you out. You know, you move your operations outside and and people are, uh, you know, you're pouring beers and pouring wine and all sorts of things outside. And we're talking a considerable amount of people, thousands of people coming to food truck Fridays each and every Friday. What an awesome idea. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was, um, uh, yeah, just brilliant. And it was um, nice because, you know, at the time, um, the the commissary kitchen was a commissary for a couple of the food trucks. And, you know, I think that it was just, you know, well, I don't have a gig this Friday, you know, and so-and-so doesn't have a gig this Friday. Well, let's put them in the parking lot, you know, and, and it just, and it grew. And then it got to the point where it was like, okay, you guys can't be here all the time. So we're going to start rotating it because it's a big thing, you know, and it's a whole thing about the community of downtown is it's options. Right. So, you know, you walk in and it's not, you know, and we're not dealing with four different um, taco trucks or four different burger trucks or whatever. You know, you're walking in and there's four different options and and the guys will be there with the Kona ice um, every week so that the kids got something to um, gnaw on. And because everybody likes, you know, funny colored ice. <laughs> you know, you know, my kids do. They're they're sprinting in and out of the wine bar and coming out and getting getting the Kona ice. It's just a, it's a cool community experience. And, you know, when my dad and I, and my mom and I talk about what does downtown Hillsborough need to take the next step? We felt like that food truck Friday and continuing to build cool events Mm -hmm. was really what that downtown area needed. What do you think is the next step for downtown Hillsborough? Um, I don't know. I would really like to see, you know, I mean, people are posting these things because um, the heritage or um, of downtown Hillsborough is becoming the historical society is becoming this big thing. I would really like to see it go back to, you know, the big trees and the sidewalks where, you know, it's more that downtown right now to me, it's a little um, open and industrial looking um, downtown, but the big trees and bringing that old school neighborhood back um, to the feel of um, main street would be um, incredible. They're working, you know, extending the um, art um, cultural walk and things like that. So that's cool. Um, I just, um, Food, you know, Venetian coming in and um and adding a um, higher end um food um items for us uh, is one thing. Right. Um, I would like to see. I mean, we've got a bit of diversity between you know Thai and Mexican and Venetian and pizza. I guess maybe another food option would be cool. Um, 
dude, I'd like a steakhouse. <laughs> I mean, yeah, something, that's, definitely, um, that's definitely what, what they're missing. Venetian seems like they came in with the high end plates, but it's not a steakhouse. No, it's not. Um, and so, you know, I think, and think that that's it. One of the deals that we'll have to figure out as um, it grows is um, what about parking? Because, right. you know, in the, and that'll be tough in the wintertime because people aren't going to, you know, aren't going to walk three or four blocks to um, spend um, good money on, um, on food. Um, so it, it, it'll, it, it'll be a, um, an interesting dimension to um, how things work out and, and how we come around. The city's got a couple of um, parking lots that they've talked about making available to people, um, to the public after five o'clock. So when their workers go home and all that, and their business is done, that they're available. So behind the, um, the fountain in that, you know, there's a decent sized parking lot and then there's a parking lot across from um, First Avenue. So figuring something out along those lines and moving the businesses, you know, probably closer to between third and First Avenue and making that core in there and, you know, up to fourth or, fi- you know, Fifth Avenue um, in there, spreading it out a little bit probably would be cool. Um, right. But, you know, I mean, the toy shop in there, you know, you've got um, the um, farm store, you've got everything else going on. Um uh, <laughs> um, it, it is great, you know, and so it'll be fun. I mean, yeah, I, I think that um, the Venetian probably is a great uh, start to all of it because you've got, uh, you know, that open balcony, they opened it up and made it um, available to people and, you know, it's gorgeous inside. So, and the food's good. So yeah, we'll see. Is there room downtown for something that has, a roots a rooftop type of bar that's always one thing that i i think Dude, about i would I love it <laughs> joe, joe I've, tra- I've traveled so many states i've been through the south you know the only area that i haven't uh you know traveled through and, and gone to various bars in is the northeast but we're missing a rooftop bar that can open up the panels. Like I understand it rains a bit here in Hillsborough, but Holy moly. If you had something where we could roll up the sides and have a rooftop bar, I'll, oh. I'll be there. I will meet you there. I dude, I concur. I mean, we've had this conversation in the past of, you know, of be of doing that and being there. And, but it's, I don't see a building right now that, um, that it could happen at, but you know, U.S. Bank building is going to get redone. They're going to put people in, you know, they're going to put apartments in there. And so maybe on the top of that um, could be something. And that would be awesome because can you imagine sitting up there and looking out at the coast range and watching the sun go down with a, with a beverage in your hand and something to eat? It would be, yeah. Yeah. All that in a bag of chips. There you go. If you just, you know, six, make it the seventh story or whatever it is out there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Joe, as we're seasonal. Say that again. I said, even if it was seasonal, it would right, be awesome. Right, right, right. Yeah, like yeah. that's the thing. It, it rains so much, but like, what if there was a way to open it up from from May to September? Like September is one of the most beautiful months in Oregon. Yeah, we have some of the most gorgeous September Indian summers that um you know imaginable. So it would be yeah. 
Joe, as we're starting to wind out this episode, I know you and I could talk all day, but right. I, I guess I have to work. Uh, not really. I'm going to go get a haircut, <laughs> but, uh, but you, you probably do. Um, why I started this podcast and, and why the title against all average is when I think of folks living an average life, they live a, a life without purpose. They live a life without drive. They, they live a life of hating what they do each and every day. For you, what makes you against all average? What makes you grind day in and day out uh, about the things that you're passionate about? Um, I, I love what I do. Um, you know, I, I, I love making wine. I love, um, I love hanging out with people. Um, and the individual stories that I get to listen to and the fact that, you know, people will tolerate me and listen to my stories is um, pretty cool too. Cause sometimes I think I'm not that interesting. Um, but it, it it's been, yeah, it, it's a great ride. Um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Awesome. Thanks you so much for being on the show. The listeners are going to love it and we're going to make sure that as much of Hillsborough listens to to it as possible to help with your continued success. Um, in order to grow the podcast, we need your help. Please subscribe it, subscribe, subscribe to it, rate it, review it, do your thing. If you find value in it, um, another big shout out to this episode's sponsor fair and event. And with that, we thank you for listening to the against all average podcast with Joe Williams teaching a master class on making wine, owning a wine bar, building community, and so much more. We'll see you next time. See you, pal. This has been Against All Average. Subscribe, share, rate, and review at againstalladverage.com.